Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Luke chapter 4, verses 33 to 44, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Luke. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Luke chapter 4, verses 33 to 44. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. This is the word of the Lord. We should notice in this passage the clear religious knowledge possessed by the devil and his agents. Twice in these verses we have proof of this. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, was the language of one unclean devil in one case. You are the Christ, the Son of God, was the language of many devils in another. Yet this knowledge was a knowledge unaccompanied by faith or hope or charity. Those who possessed it were miserably fallen beings full of bitter hatred both against God and man. Let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity. It is a dangerous possession, but a fearfully common one in these latter days. We may know the Bible intellectually and have no doubt about the truth of its contents. We may have our memories well stored with its leading texts and be able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines. And all this time the Bible may have no influence over our hearts and wills and consciences. We may, in reality, be nothing better than devils. Let it never content us to know religion with our heads only. We may go all our lives saying, I know that, I know that, and sink at last into hell with the words upon our lips. Let us see that our knowledge bears fruit in our lives. Does our knowledge of sin make us hate it? Does our knowledge of Christ make us trust him and love him? Does our knowledge of God's will make us strive to do it? Does our knowledge of the fruits of the Spirit make us labor to show them in our daily behavior? Knowledge of this kind is really profitable. 
Any other religious knowledge will only add to our condemnation at the last day. We should notice, secondly, in this passage, the almighty power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see sicknesses and devils alike yielding to his command. He rebukes unclean spirits, and they come forth from the unhappy people whom they had possessed. He rebukes a fever and lays his hands on sick people, and at once their diseases depart and the sick are healed. We cannot fail to observe many similar cases in the four Gospels. They occur so frequently that we are apt to read them with a thoughtless eye and forget the mighty lesson which each one is meant to convey. They are all intended to fasten our minds to the great truth that Christ is the appointed healer of every evil which sin has brought into the world. Christ is the true antidote and remedy for all the soul-ruining mischief which Satan has wrought on mankind. Christ is the universal physician to whom all the children of Adam must repair if they would be made whole. In him is life and health and liberty. This is the grand doctrine which every miracle of mercy in the gospel is obtained and appointed to teach. Each is a plain witness to that mighty fact which lies at the very fountain of the gospel. The ability of Christ to supply to the uttermost every need of human nature is the very cornerstone of Christianity. Christ, in one word, is all. Colossians 3.11 Let the study of every miracle help to engrave this truth deeply in our hearts. We should notice, thirdly, in our verses, our Lord's practice of occasional retirement from public notice into some solitary place. We read that after healing many that were sick and casting out many devils, he departed and went into a desert place. His object in so doing is shown by comparison with other places in the Gospels. He went aside from his work for a season to hold communion with his Father in heaven and to pray. Holy and sinless as his human nature was, it was a nature kept sinless in the regular use of means of grace and not in the neglect of them. There is an example here which all who desire to grow in grace and walk closely with God would do well to follow. We must make time for private meditation and for being alone with God. It must not content us to pray daily and read the scriptures, to hear the gospel regularly and to receive the Lord's Supper. All this is well, but something more is needed. We should set apart special seasons for solitary self-examination and meditation on the things of God. How often in a year this practice should be attempted, each Christian must judge for himself, but that the practice is most desirable seems clear from both Scripture and experience. We live in hurrying, bustling times. The excitement of daily business and constant engagements keeps many men in a perpetual whirl and entails great peril on souls. The neglect of this habit of withdrawing occasionally from worldly business is the probable cause of many an inconsistency or backsliding which brings scandal on the cause of Christ. The more work we have to do, the more we ought to imitate our master. If he, in the midst of his abundant labors, found time to retire from the world occasionally, how much more may we? If the master found the practice necessary, it must surely be a thousand times more necessary for his disciples. We ought to notice, lastly, in these verses, the declaration of our Lord as to one of the objects of his coming into the world. We read that he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
An expression like this ought to silence forever the foolish remarks that are sometimes made against preaching. The mere fact that the eternal Son of God undertook the office of a preacher should satisfy us that preaching is one of the most valuable means of grace. To speak of preaching, as some do, as a thing of less importance than reading public scriptures or prayers or administering the sacraments is, to say the least, to exhibit ignorance of scripture. It is a striking circumstance in our Lord's history that although he was almost incessantly preaching, we never read of his baptizing any person. The witness of John is distinct on this point. Jesus baptized not. John 4.2 Let us beware of despising preaching. In every age of the church, it has been God's principal instrument for the awakening of sinners and the edifying of saints. The days when there has been little or no preaching have been days where there has been little or no good done in the church. Let us hear sermons in a prayerful and reverent frame of mind, and remember that they are the principal engines which Christ himself employed when he was upon earth. Not least, let us pray daily for a continual supply of faithful preachers of God's word. According to the state of the pupil will always be the state of a congregation and of a church. That is the end of Rao's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, do we reflect the devil in knowing truth about God, but are not transformed by it? What difference does our theology make? Let me ask Ryle's questions again. Does our knowledge of sin make us hate it? Does our knowledge of Christ make us trust and love him? Does our knowledge of God's will make us strive to do it? And does our knowledge of the fruits of the Spirit make us labor to show them in our daily behavior? These are profitable. Second, do we really believe that Christ is the cornerstone of all our needs and hopes, that in him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Third, Ryle, like us, lived in hurrying, busy times. What is our practice of making time for private meditation and being alone with God? What difference would it make if we did? And lastly, do we see preaching as a primary means of grace? Do we come to sermons with humble, prayerful hearts to hear from God and apply what we hear?